This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about one of the most important stories in the Gospels. Actually, I guess all of the stories in the Gospels are important. But this is one which you find in all three synoptic Gospels. Those are the first three Gospels, uh, excluding John. And there's even uh, a version of it in John. But it's the story of Jesus calming the storm. And as we'll see, it could just as easily be called Jesus bringing the storm. And what we'll look at is what the gospel has to say about divinity, what it has to say about our job in the church, what it has to say about our lives. I'm going to read Mark's version from Mark chapter 3, the calming of a storm at sea. On that day, as evening drew on, he said to them, let us cross to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. A violent squall came up, and waves were breaking over the boat, so that it was already filling up. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Quiet, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? They were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this whom even the wind and sea obey? This story takes place in Galilee near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and that's important. The Gospel of Matthew says, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. We saw how that worked. John the Baptist got stuck in Herod's dungeon in the southern part of the Holy Land. Jesus took that as his cue to start his public ministry. Then he deliberately chose the place where he launched his ministry, Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee. To review what we talked about in the first season of The Extraordinary Story, Jesus was always very much identified with Nazareth, but he saw Nazareth reject him. His townspeople literally tried to throw him off a cliff, if you will recall. After that, Jesus moves 40 miles north to Capernaum at the very opposite end of the Holy Land from where John was locked up. He goes to Galilee, and if it helps, think of Galilee as the Poland of the Holy Land. Just as Poland was the first place to be invaded by the Germans in World War II, and the first to be invaded by the Soviet Union after that, Galilee was the first area to be conquered by the cruel Assyrians, and then it was first in line, at least geographically, on the way to the Babylonian exile. Isaiah said this degraded Galilee which became the district of the Gentiles. Well, Poland was also degraded by its occupiers. It became the site of six of the most notorious Nazi death camps, including Auschwitz and Treblinka. But God loves to turn dark places bright, and Poland became a bright light by the end of the 20th century. It was the birthplace of the divine mercy devotion that took the world by storm, and of John Paul II, who changed our map and our daily lives. 
Jesus says the same thing to a massively greater degree in Galilee. The people who sit in darkness have seen a great light, we learn. That great light was Jesus himself, and he sets about reestablishing the 12 tribes of Israel by choosing 12 apostles and starts to reestablish the ministry of Moses and of all the Old Testament covenants, most importantly, the Davidic covenant. But in Mark, the story of the storm continues a story that started way back a few episodes ago when we talked about the parable of the sower. Remember, it said, quote, a very large crowd gathered around him, so he got into a boat on the sea to sit down, and he taught them at length in parables, unquote. So today's story begins, quote, on that day, as evening drew on, he said to them, let us cross to the other side, leaving the crowd. They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, end quote. So this sounds very much like an eyewitness account probably Peter's eyewitness account as spoken to Mark, his secretary. There's a traditional spot people assume was the place of the parables, a kind of natural amphitheater uh, next to the Sea of Galilee. So you can picture him there, Jesus, teaching all day from his boat in as loud a voice as he could muster. And you can picture the other boats kind of hovering close by to try to hear him a little bit better. And if you ask any teacher how they feel after a full day of teaching, you will hear that this is mentally and physically exhausting. So Jesus, at the end of this long day, as they're going across the lake and evening is drawing on, he lies down in the cushion of the boat and zonks. He's asleep. He had just told the apostles that God is always with them, that God is the principle of grace and growth, that they can rely on him like the sower relies on rain and soil. And the apostles would have gotten the sense that this Jesus was a man of great authority. They were still trying to figure out who he was, but they were starting to believe he was the pearl of great price that you sell everything for, and that he's the net that will gather everything together. And now he was tired, and he lay down and his head on a cushion at the back of the boat and fell asleep. And as Matthew puts it, a violent storm came up, and the boat was being swamped by the waves. So I've been through some violent storms in my day. There were these tornado-like windstorms that we had in Arizona that literally picked things off our porch and tossed them around. And I was in a thunderstorm once where lightning struck only yards from me. So I can imagine how much worse this must have been at sea, where the apostles had no ground under their feet and their craft, their ancient boat. I mean, it was in ancient times they built this boat. Uh, was being pushed and creaking and groaning and filling up with water. They were afraid and they were a little bit angry. How is it possible that Jesus isn't aware of what's going on? Why is he doing nothing? How dare he sleep at a moment like this? They woke him up and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He wakes up and with a word quiets the storm. Then it's his turn to get angry at the apostles. Like a parent gets angry at a child when they accuse you of not caring what happens to them. He says, do you have no faith? The first point to make about this story is that it is a very clear early sign of the divinity of Christ. Bart Ehrman and others love to make the claim that the early Christians didn't believe Jesus was God. And their crowning proof is that Jesus himself is never quoted saying that he is God until the Gospel of John, which some say is the last gospel written, 
and used to be thought to have appeared a long time after the others. But the fact is, right here in Mark, in what is usually considered to be the earliest gospel written, Jesus is already showing himself to be God. But he shows it rather than stating it. Because while people had seen holy men who brought about healings and who exercised demons and taught powerfully, no one could do what Jesus was doing. No one but God could forgive sins like Jesus did, and no one but God could calm the seas. Psalm 107 describes how seagoing uh, men had faced the deeper meaning of things. It says, quote, Some sailed to the sea in ships to trade on the mighty waters. These men have seen the Lord's deeds, the wonders he does in the deep. And it goes on to say of God, quote, For he spoke, he summoned the gale, tossing the waves of the sea up to heaven and back into the deep. Their souls melted away in their distress. Then a little later it says, He stilled the storm to a whisper. All the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced because of the calm, and he led them to the haven they desired. End quote. So that's exactly the story we just heard. But the Old Testament says in several other places that God is the one who calms storms. In Psalm 65, it says, You still the roaring of seas, the roaring of their waves. In Psalm 89, it says, It is you who rule the sea in its pride. It is you who have still the surging of its waves. So, showing Jesus stand up and quietly rebuke the storm is a clear indication that Jesus is God in the earliest gospel. But there's also something a little bit unsettling here. For one thing, it sounds like a primitive understanding of God, like a Zeus hurling thunderbolts. But that doesn't bother me. As we said before, God is the ultimate ground of being, and the whole universe is powered by him. In the West, we tend to love what Greeks like Aristotle and Plato say about God and see a lot of truth in it. And there is a lot of truth in it. God is the non-contingent first cause of all contingent things. But we tend to not like what other Greeks, like Homer, say about God. But there's a lot of truth in that, too. Obviously, there's a lot of nastiness in Greek gods, but the fact that God is a person who has a real relationship with his people is a great truth. There's a theologian here at Benedictine College who says, you can see in the Greek gods the longing that people had for God to become man. But if you put Aristotle and Homer together, you see a God who is the first cause of all contingent things, including storms. You also get the unsettling realization that God doesn't just stop storms. God is there assenting and creating and causing storms, in a sense, from the start as well. Because that's what we're seeing here, right? God is the one who brings storms, and he is the one who calms storms. And to have faith is to accept the storm and the calm both. When Job sees his family destroyed and all of his property taken away and then finds himself covered with boils, he cannot understand why God would allow this. So God finally answers him in the 38th chapter of Job. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. That's the storm itself manifesting God. And what did God say to Job from the storm? The same thing every storm says to us. Quote, where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its size? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line for it? Who shut within doors the sea? 
That's what storms say. Storms say you are nothing. Nature can shut you down in a snap. And I can turn off nature at will. When we're faced with storms, we always want to say, God, that's too much. Don't do that. That's too much for us. But again and again, you may have noticed, God does not stop storms. They say that God never gives you more than you can handle, but that's not my experience. It seems to me that God loves giving you more than you can handle so that you have to turn to him. He speaks to you from the storm, telling you loud and clear that you absolutely cannot handle life without him. And that's what explains Jesus' reaction when the apostles wake him up. First, he rebukes the storm, and then he rebukes them. He didn't mind that they said, save us. He loves that prayer. But he didn't like that he said, God, don't you care? This is a perfect metaphor for the relationship between God, the natural world, and us. We often misunderstand each of these relationships. On the one hand, many people can think we totally dominate the natural world, that human beings can create our own future, deciding that we are masters of the universe. Then on the other hand, many people think of God as the creator who often seems to have retreated from his creation. This supposedly powerful God who nonetheless watches helplessly as chaos ruins the beauty of the things he has made. It only takes some good strong weather to remind us of the truth. In the gospel, the master lake men set out on their journey but soon they find they are no match for the first storm that comes along. And these men, who were so full of faith not long ago, deciding to follow Jesus and be his band of brothers, immediately decide that Jesus doesn't care. He's just sleeping on a cushion. He's relaxed, enjoying the greatest of all pleasures of adulthood, sleep, while they face the greatest of all fears of adulthood, death. This is how we think of God when things go wrong. He's not the lord of the storm, he's the lord of the cushion, off reclining somewhere, enjoying heavenly bliss. And maybe we don't put it that way, but we say, do you not care that we are perishing? Only we might say, do you not care about the refugees torn from their countries? Do you not care about Ukrainian kids who can't speak because of PTSD after seeing their cities bombed? Don't you care about human trafficking victims? Don't you care about slavery? Don't you care about the poor and the hungry? Do you care that anxiety is overwhelming people and suicide rates are mounting? Do you care about tsunamis? Do you care about hurricanes? Do you care about cultural tsunamis? Do you care about moral hurricanes? That's why this gospel is raised so often in the church's life. Pope Francis went through it almost line by line during COVID, during his Urbi at Orbi message, starting with the line, when evening had come. Months into COVID, he said, For weeks now it has been evening. Thick darkness has gathered over our squares, our cities, and our streets. It has taken over our lives, filling everything with a deafening silence and a distressing void that stops everything as it passes by. We find ourselves afraid and lost. We have realized that we are on the same boat, all of us, fragile and disoriented, just like those disciples who spoke anxiously with one voice, saying, Do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus answers, Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Pope Francis says, quote, The Lord awakens so as to reawaken and revive our Easter faith. We have an anchor. By his cross we have been saved. We have a rudder. By his cross we have been redeemed. We have a hope. By his cross we have been healed and embraced so that nothing and no one can separate us from his redeeming love. End quote. He said love was the answer to the pandemic and praised those who, quote, 
We're exercising patience and offering hope, taking care to sow not panic, but a shared responsibility. How many mothers, fathers, grandparents, and teachers are showing our children in small everyday gestures how to face up to and navigate a crisis, end quote. So Pope Francis looked at the storm and said, we need love. Pope Benedict talked about the storm and said, we need faith. Right before the conclave that elected him, he quoted St. Paul's words to the Ephesians about being tossed here and there, carried away by every wind of doctrine, and said, quote, This description is very timely. How many winds of doctrine have we known in recent decades? How many ideological currents? How many ways of thinking? The small boat of thought of many Christians has been tossed about by the waves, flung from one extreme to the other, from Marxism to liberalism, even to libertinism, from collectivism to radical individualism, from atheism to a vague religious mysticism, from agnosticism to synchronism, and so forth. He said, faith is caught in a terrible storm. Quote, Having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism, whereas relativism, that is, letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times. We are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal solely consists of one's own ego and desires. We, however, have a different goal, the Son of God, the true man. He is the measure of true humanism. It is this friendship that opens us up to all that is good and gives us the criterion by which to distinguish the true from the false and deceit from truth. And it is this faith, only faith that creates unity and is fulfilled in love, end quote. So Francis said to love in the storm. Benedict said to have faith in the storm. And what did John Paul II say? I started out by saying that Galilee was the Holy Land's Poland. And if anyone deserved to see their life as a storm, it's John Paul from our Poland. We've had some bad leadership in America but everything we have had is better than having Hitler and Himmler's Nazis take over your country and create Auschwitz 40 minutes from your home, like John Paul II had. We hope sanity might return in future elections, but political change came for Poland on Liberation Day, which was a compulsory holiday that the Soviets imposed in place of Catholic feast days when they took over. John Paul faced betrayals by friends to the authorities and saw allies disappeared by the Communist Party, and he faced it all with nothing but the graves of his beloved father, brother, sister, and mother to turn to, because God had taken every one of his beloved family members away from him one by one, leaving him alone. And what did he do? We saw it when he became Pope. In his first homily, he said, Be not afraid. Do not be afraid to welcome Christ and accept his power. Do not be afraid. Open wide the doors to Christ. To his saving power, open the boundaries of states, economic and political systems, the vast fields of culture, civilization, and development. Do not be afraid. Christ knows what is in man. He alone knows it. End quote. So the storm was raging all around, and he said, Be not afraid. In 1992, he came to America, and on World Youth Day in Denver, he said to stand tall in the face of the storm and sail on. 
Quote, At this stage of history, the liberating message of the gospel of life has been put into your hands, and the mission of proclaiming it to the ends of the earth is now passing to your generation. Do not be afraid to go out on the streets and into public places like the first apostles who preached Christ and the good news of salvation in the squares of cities, towns, and villages. This is no time to be ashamed of the gospel. It is time to preach it from the rooftops. Do not be afraid to break out of comfortable and routine modes of living in order to take up the challenge of making Christ known in the modern metropolis. It is you who must go out into the byroads and invite everyone you meet to the banquets which God has prepared for his people. End quote. I wasn't there because we were having our first baby at the time, but those words changed the trajectory of so many people in my generation. We faced the storm. Then, as the 21st century dawned, John Paul said again in a document that came out in 2001, not long before 9-11, quote, We do not know what the new millennium has in store for us, but we are certain that it is safe in the hands of Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, end quote. Be not afraid. The Lord is there. He cares. With him you've got this. He's got this because he is the Lord of the storm. The storms that rage around us today are no different. God knows the storm is there. He will quiet the storm in time. In fact, he's already quieting it. A hundred years from now, we'll look back and see what we were supposed to learn from today's storms. We were supposed to learn to trust in God more, not to abandon him. We were supposed to cling to his cross in love, like Pope Francis said. We were supposed to drop the anchor of faith, like Pope Benedict said. We were supposed to remember the hope of John Paul II, because the Lord may be sleeping, but he is not unaware. In the gospel, when Jesus says, quiet, be still, you get the sense that he is saying that not only to the winds, but to the apostles. Relax, trust me. They are wrong to question God's care for them. In fact, what the storm is showing them isn't that God has forgotten them, but that they have forgotten God. They have gone from gratefully accepting his generous gifts to expecting his gifts as their right. They now expect life to be comfortable and storm-free. In fact, their job in life is to cleave to the Lord, not the other way around. Their job is to follow him, and he can only be found in calm, quiet, and stillness. It's not like they didn't know this from a thousand years of salvation history, because in salvation history, God doesn't just still storms, he turns their violence into covenants and sacraments. God was the Lord of the storm who brought the flood. The flood didn't just bring God's judgment to the earth, it also brought his covenant, sealed by the rainbow, a symbol that God was putting down his bow and offering peace. God was the Lord of the storm who didn't just save the Israelites' firstborn, he led them across the sea and kicked up a storm in their wake. God was the Lord of the storm who didn't just thunder and quake with a pillar of cloud on Mount Sinai. He chose the Israelites as his people there too. Likewise, in the new covenant, Jesus brings peace through suffering violence. His heart pours out blood and water for us on the cross to bring us baptism in the Eucharist. We enter the storm of his death and resurrection in baptism, and we are sustained by the blood he shed for us in the earthquake and lightning on the cross. He even turns the violence of the sins we commit against him into the grace that saves us in reconciliation and confession. We can see all the storms of life in this way. 
They are God, the Lord of the storm, coming to us so that we can pass through them to a new life of greater peace. But it's important to remember that peace is always the goal, not turmoil. In discussing this passage, St. Augustine warns not just about the storms we face in life, but the storms we encourage. Quote, When your anger is roused, you are being tossed by the waves. So when the winds blow and the waves mount high, the boat is in danger. Your heart is imperiled. Your heart is taking a battering. On hearing yourself insulted, you long to retaliate. But the joy of revenge brings with it another kind of misfortune, shipwreck. End quote. That is what happens when you embrace the drama, when you encourage the storm instead of seeking peace. Storm chasers drive at tornadoes and into hurricanes for the adrenaline rush and YouTube glory. Many of us are emotional storm chasers, trying to disrupt the boredom of life with conflict and drama. We may seek out physical violence in movies, video games, or other entertainment, or emotional violence in political conflict, sports narratives, celebrity gossip. But many of us are storm chasers in our personal lives, addicted to the drama of anger, constant busyness, or self-pity. In the spiritual life, storm chasing always ends in shipwreck. Why is this? St. Augustine explains, quote, Because Christ is asleep in you. What do I mean? I mean you have forgotten his presence. Rouse him then. Remember him. Let him keep watch within you. Pay heed to him. There's always one place to find the sleeping Christ and wake him. In the tabernacle. There is no more clear representation of God's calm than Jesus sleeping through a violent squall in a small boat taking on water. And there is no more clear representation of Jesus accompanying us through the storms of our life than the tabernacle in our churches. Churches that are often literally shaped like a boat. And there's the sleeping Jesus in the tabernacle, in the stern. Visit him there and receive him there at Mass. There you will discover that he isn't the storm god of violence or drama or turmoil. Rather, quotes, he is the rest of the weary and burdened, as St. Gregory of Nazianzen puts it. He goes lightly over the sea and rebukes the winds. Storms bring God into our life, and God brings calm into our storms, including the guaranteed calm we get from the sacraments. Remember when, in the book of Kings, the Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. End quote. That's the Lord you find in the tabernacle. Go to him and say, Lord, we know you care. You always did and you always will. But please, Lord, save us and hold fast to Christ in the storm. And you will see that the wind stops pummeling your boat and the water stops swamping your deck as you enter the extraordinary calm of Jesus Christ's extraordinary story.
The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.